Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases that range from murders, missing persons, cold cases, soft cases, and more. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Margaret Mary Clink was born in Youngstown, Ohio, on December 2, 1970, and went by Peggy. In 1998, 28-year-old Peggy moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and enrolled in the University of New Mexico's medical program with plans to become a doctor. While at the university, she began dating Patrick Lee Kennedy, who shared a couple of classes with her. Patrick, who was divorced with a young daughter, seemed decent enough. However, the relationship quickly turned abusive, with Patrick becoming increasingly jealous and controlling over Peggy. At one point, Peggy made plans to visit her family in Ohio for the holidays, which upset Patrick. He then showed up unannounced in her hometown. Even more strange, she hadn't given him the address of where she would be. Another time, she was invited to a friend's wedding back in Ohio, but Patrick wasn't. Once he found out, he canceled her plane ticket and bought two tickets so they could go together. Whenever he did something crazy, he would tell her it was only because he cared and loved her. By March of 2002, Peggy had had enough and packed a suitcase and hid out at her friend Marie's house. During this time, Patrick continued to call and text her. Now that she was finally out of the relationship, things would only worsen. He began stalking and intimidating her, making threats, and was even violent at times. Peggy was trying to move on with her life and began dating a man named Mark Sparks, who she taught in yoga class. Meanwhile, Patrick continued stalking Peggy and even went to Ohio and wrote graffiti on Peggy's mother's garage door. He then set Mark's house on fire while he and Peggy were out of state at a wedding. During one of the times he was stalking her, Peggy was out walking at night when Patrick approached her and proposed. He was eventually arrested for the stalking, but quickly posted bail. In August of 2002, Peggy fled New Mexico and relocated to Turlock, California, hoping to escape Patrick's craziness. She also filed a restraining order against him, but sadly, the process was never completed. Patrick then hired a private investigator to track her down. Days before his trial for stalking, he went to her new home in Turlock. While Peggy was hiding out in her apartment, her neighbor began knocking on the door. With Patrick distracted, Peggy was able to flee, along with the neighbor, to the neighbor's apartment. 
calling 911, she and the neighbor locked themselves in a closet. However, Patrick broke in and ordered the neighbor to leave. Fearing for her own life, the neighbor left. He then took her out of the closet and into the apartment. Once the SWAT team arrived, they began talking with Peggy through the door. Sadly, knowing he would never let her leave alive, she asked the police for three favors. Tell her mother she loves her, tell her nieces that they will have a guardian angel in heaven, and tell her sister to name her baby after her. After her request, Patrick fatally shot Peggy and then turned the gun on himself. Nikki Davy Allen was born to Sharon and David on August 30th, 1985 in Sunderland, England. In 1992, seven-year-old Nikki was still living in Sunderland with her mother, Sharon, stepfather, sister, and two half-sisters and was described as a bright and sparky child. At about 8.30 p.m. on October 7th, Nikki was playing outside the Garth Flats where she lived when she sadly disappeared. When Sharon arrived home and noticed Nikki was nowhere to be found, she and around 100 neighbors began looking for her. The next day, Nikki's shoes and coat were spotted outside the nearby abandoned old exchange building. Sadly, her body was found inside the basement of the building where she had been beaten with a brick and stabbed to death. About a year after her murder, the police found a knife matching Nikki's stab wounds in the home of 23-year-old George Heron, who lived close to Nikki. They also found blood spatter on his clothes as well as his shoes. He was then arrested and charged with her murder. His sister didn't help his case and said that on the night of Nikki's murder, he arrived home, went straight to the bathroom, and remained there for about 30 minutes. This struck her as odd because he normally didn't do this. He allegedly went to the bathroom to wash both himself and his clothes. However, George denied being out on the evening of the murder, although four witnesses saw a man matching his description at the Boar's Head Pub and the Clarendon Pub, which were both near the Garth Flats. A man resembling George's description was also seen buying cheese and onion chips, which were Nikki's favorite. So police believed he used those to lure her into the old exchange building. After three days of questioning, George falsely confessed to the murder. However, the judge, recognizing the police had basically forced him to admit to the murder, threw out the taped confession. After that, he was found not guilty and was allowed to change his name and move away from Sunderland. In 1994, Nikki's mother, Sharon, brought a civil case against George. She charged Heron with battery on a child resulting in her death. A court found this in her favor and ordered him to pay her more than 7,000 pounds. Since George changed his name and couldn't be found, the money was never paid. This is sad because George did not murder Nikki and the accusation and trial basically ruined his life. He was already known as a weirdo and loner in the neighborhood and after the accusations, he spent the rest of his life in hiding. 30 years later, in May of 2023, Northumbria police apologized to him. Unfortunately, I was not able to find where the blood on his clothes and shoes came from or if there was ever even blood on him in the first place. Years later, a woman contacted Sharon, claiming to have new information about the murder. 
the woman, who was 12 years old at the time of Nikki's murder, had been babysitting nearby and noticed a man by the name of David Boyd, who was 25 years old at the time, being followed by a girl skipping in the direction of the old exchange building. Sharon then spent the next year convincing the police to reinvestigate the case. In 2017, advanced DNA was used to test the clothes that Nikki was wearing while murdered. From that, they were able to obtain an unknown male's DNA. Suspecting David Boyd was involved in Nikki's murder, he was arrested in 2018 but released after several interviews. In 2019, the police began collecting DNA from all the men in the neighborhood from that night, a total of 839 men to be exact. In the end, the only person it matched to was David Boyd, who resembled the man witnesses saw on the night of Nikki's murder. David? Yeah. Hi, how are you doing? I fixed it, Ness. Hello, Hi. Hello, Yeah, yeah. Cheers. Do us a favor and just knock the telly off for a second. Pardon? Do us a favor and just knock the telly off just so you can hear what I'm saying. Thanks, man. David, this is on, Terry. This is yeah. Marty. We're part of the team that's reinvestigating the murder of Nicky Allen. Yeah. Okay. Part of that investigation has uh, led us to suspect that you may have had some involvement in that. Okay. I so have I'm no involvement. So anyway. I'm arresting you on suspicion, okay, of that offence. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your offence if you do not mention, when questioned, something which you later lie in court. Anything yeah. you do say may be given in evidence. Just, just leave your phone there for a moment. Just put your hands out first. Thanks. We're going to be close. Well, we'll sort that all out, don't worry. Turns out, he had even spoken to police after the murder and admitted to seeing Nikki that night. Plus, he had a history of crimes against minors. In 1999, he was arrested for assaulting a nine-year-old girl and placed on probation. He would then tell his probation officer that he fantasized about young girls when he was in his early 20s. Nikki and her family actually knew David Boyd because he was dating their babysitter at the time. So, it makes sense that Nikki would trust him enough to follow him. When Boyd was asked why his DNA was found on Nikki, he told them he may have spit on her from his balcony on the night of the murder. In May of 2023, Boyd was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 29 years. Sharon is now suing the Northumbria police over the 30 years it took to solve the case. Shayna Grice was born the only child to Sharon and Richard and grew up in Portslade, a suburb of Brighton, England, and was described as lively and full of life. In the summer of 2015, 18-year-old Shayna got a job working as a receptionist for Brighton Fire Alarms. She had been with her boyfriend, Ashley Cook, since secondary school, or high school as we call it in the U.S., and was hoping to save enough money working to pay for their wedding. While at work, she unfortunately met a mechanic at the company named Michael Lane. The two began an on-and-off-again relationship, and she broke things off with Ashley. However, it wouldn't last long because Lane became obsessed with Shayna. He was controlling and possessive, and she wanted nothing to do with that. So, she ended the relationship and tried to distance herself. However, he refused to accept the breakup and told a friend she'll pay for what she's done. Lane then began stalking and harassing her. She even reported him to the police five times, and in February 2016, they issued Lane a warning for the harassment, but that didn't stop him. 
He then put a tracker device on her car, which notified him via his cell phone every time her vehicle moved. He also slashed her tires and damaged her car on numerous occasions. In the meanwhile, she had rekindled her relationship with Ashley. A month later, on March 24, 2016, Lane chased Shayna down outside of Ashley's family home, grabbed her hair, and tried to take her phone. This prompted Ashley's mother to call the police. When they arrived, they didn't initially know that Lane and Shayna had been in an on-and-off-again relationship. However, during questioning, Lane admitted to assaulting her, but also informed them about their relationship. Officers decided to only issue a warning to Lane and then accused Shayna of using a false report to disguise her affair and then fined her 90 pounds for wasting their time. On July 9, 2016, Lane used a key he had stolen to let himself into her home and watch her while he thought she was sleeping. However, she was actually awake, had heard his footsteps, and hid under her covers. Not realizing it was Lane, she began recording audio of the man breathing. She then caught him saying, I wanted to see you, and I knew you wouldn't let me in. He said, I'm just not right in the head, otherwise I wouldn't do it. When he finally left, she looked out her window and saw Lane walking away. The following day, Shayna received around seven phone calls from a blocked number, including one with heavy breathing. The day after that, on July 12, 2016, she reported Lane for stalking. Two weeks later, she saw Lane stalking her outside her home. She confided in her friend, Joanne Pumphrey, that she feared the police wouldn't believe her because of her previous fine for wasting police time. So she decided not to report it to the police. Then on August 25, 2016, Lane waited for Shayna's roommates to leave, then let himself in and murdered her with a knife to the neck. He then tried to set her bedroom on fire. Ashley's father, Ian, would ultimately discover her body. Surveillance video would catch Lane walking down the street with his bloody clothes in his hand. He was then arrested later that day at work. He initially lied to the police about his whereabouts before finally confessing to being at the crime scene. I went round, walked round there, the door was open. The front door was open. Wide open or unlocked? No, it was open. No, it wasn't wide open, but it was like half. Okay. Half open. So I went in there, uh, but her bedroom door was open, half open again, and she was on the floor. However, he claimed that he had found the front door open and then found Shayna's body in her bedroom. He said he panicked and then left the scene without dialing 999, checking Shayna's vital signs, or telling his family what he had found. He said he only kept quiet about what he had seen because he was afraid of being accused of her murder. He admitted to stalking Shayna, but pleaded not guilty to the murder charges. In the end, Lane was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with eligibility for parole at 25 years. Shayna's case thankfully led to changes in the law, and in 2019, the government introduced the Stalking Protection Order, or SPO, which allows police to intervene earlier to protect stalking victims. The SPO can be issued to individuals who have not yet been convicted of a crime, but pose a risk to their victims. This allows police to take action before a crime is committed and potentially prevent a tragedy like the murder of Shayna from occurring. After the trial, 12 women came forward to say that dating back to 2005, Lane had harassed them. 
a domestic homicide review report concluded that Lane had harassed 12 girls and young women between 2006 and 2016 and had been arrested for allegedly grooming a 14-year-old girl. While he was not charged for the grooming allegation, it was on his record. However, the reports of harassment from Shana were not on his record. The allegation dates back to when he was a volunteer scout leader. After his arrest, he resigned from the scouts. He was told the allegation would be considered if he tried to rejoin the organization, but when he did so in 2015, he was not recognized as a past member and he volunteered for several months. The failure to recognize him was attributed to a temporary glitch in the IT system. The report also mentioned an account of Lane being very controlling in another relationship of him bombarding women with explicit messages, loitering outside their homes, pestering women to sleep with him for money, harassing two women he met in a pub, and sexually assaulting another woman. In August 2019, it was announced that the Sussex police would no longer find people reporting domestic abuse for wasting police time. In addition, in April 2019, it was announced that three police officers would face disciplinary action for not properly investigating her claims. Thirteen police staff in total were investigated for misconduct, and two officers faced gross misconduct proceedings, while another was accused of misconduct. Shana's parents said their daughter paid for the police's lack of training, care, and poor attitude. The Alday family lived in the rural county of Seminole, located in southern Georgia. Ned and Ernestine Alday lived in a big farmhouse on River Road with their youngest children, Faye and Jimmy. In a trailer a few miles down the road lived their son, Jerry, and his wife, Mary Campbell. Another son by the name of Chester, who went by Suji, lived with his wife, Barbara, in a trailer a few yards from the house. Together, the family ran the farm full of animals and crops. On May 14th, Ned, his brother Aubrey, and Ned's sons Jerry, Jimmy, and Suji started their day as usual by working the family farm. Jerry's wife, Mary, left that day to work in nearby Donaldsonville, and their mother, Ernestine, was in the house preparing lunch. When they met for lunch, everything was fine. They ate and went right back to work, never realizing this would be the last meal they would share together. Unfortunately, 11 days earlier, events had unfolded 900 miles away at the Poplar Hill Correctional Camp, a minimal security work camp in southeast Maryland. 19-year-old Carl Isaacs Jr. was imprisoned after being arrested in March for stealing. Within days of arriving at the Maryland State Penitentiary Prison, a riot had broken out and he was sexually assaulted for eight long hours by other inmates. He was then moved to the Poplar Hill facility. Here, he would find his half-brother, 26-year-old Wayne Coleman, who was already being housed at the facility. Carl then came up with a plan to escape and wanted his brother to come along. However, Wayne would only go if Carl would allow 36-year-old George Dungey to come along. According to an old newspaper I read, George was estimated to have an IQ between 64 and 69 and was said to be very gullible and trusting. He would have to be to go along with the plan because he was only in there for failure to pay child support and was set to be released soon, so he had no real reason to escape. With all three of them on board, they put their plan in motion on May 5th around 3 a.m. After escaping through a bathroom window, they hid in the woods until they were sure it was safe. After that, they stole a car and hit the road. 
Unfortunately, the guards at the prison didn't think they were dangerous and never alerted local authorities. The men then spent the next two days in Baltimore, where Carl decided to pick up his 15-year-old brother, Billy Isaacs. The four men then headed south with a plan to go to either Florida or Mexico to live out their days. While traveling through McConnellsburg, Pennsylvania, they decided to steal another car, but were spotted by 19-year-old Richard Wayne Miller. Richard then chased the suspects in his dark green 1968 Chevy Super Sport. However, the suspects decided to stop and kidnap Richard. He was then taken to a wooded area and murdered. After that, the men continued on their trip and eventually ended up in Jacksonville, Florida. They then decided to head back north, which took them through Seminole County. Carl decided to find a place to rob since they were out of money and about out of gas. Around 4.15 p.m. on May 14th, they spotted a gas tank at the mobile home of Jerry and Mary. Carl and Wayne began rummaging through the trailer while George and Billy remained in the car. Upon seeing Ned and Jerry pull up, Billy ran inside and warned his brother Carl. So Carl came outside and forced the men inside the trailer where they were shot and killed. Not long after, Jimmy arrived on a tractor and was also forced into the trailer by Carl and met the same fate as Jerry and Ned. When Carl went outside to move the tractor, Mary pulled up after going to the grocery store. Carl then forced her into the trailer as well, but didn't kill her right away. Instead, they sexually assaulted and robbed her. If things couldn't get any worse for the all-day family, Suji and Aubrey showed up. Carl brought them inside, and just like the other men, they were shot to death. The suspects then fled with Mary and drove around six miles north to a secluded area, where they sexually assaulted her once more before murdering her. They were finally caught by the West Virginia State Police and extradited back to Donaldsonville, Georgia. Billy was the only one who cooperated, and for that, he was given 20 years for the armed robbery. As for Carl, Wayne, and George, they were all convicted of murder and sentenced to death. However, due to the publicity of the case, their sentences were overturned in 1985. In 1988, they were all convicted again, but this time, Wayne and George received life in prison, while Carl was once again sentenced to death. Billy was eventually released in 1993 and died in the Florida Panhandle in 2009 at the age of 51. George died of a heart attack in 2006 in prison at the age of 68. Believe it or not, Wayne is still alive and remains locked up at the Wilcox State Prison. As for Carl, he remained on death row and was finally executed by lethal injection in 2003 at the age of 49. Surviving members of the Alday family were present for the execution. In the end, Carl sat on death row longer than any other inmate in the United States. In 2003, the Alday family bill was passed, which makes it mandatory for state officials to contact the families of victims in death penalty cases twice a year. Sadly, Mary's mother, Alberta Lane Campbell, died five days after her daughter was murdered. It was said that Mary's death was too much for Alberta to handle. Shockingly, Carl was interviewed by a documentary film crew and basically showed no remorse for the murders. I honestly think that it would have turned out differently if you had any, anything to do about it. Well, it would turn out different in some way as, as, you know, as far as pulling that trigger and killing them people. Uh, I believe it would happen again. 
In 2017, a monument was placed at the entrance of where Jerry and Mary's trailer once stood on the east side of Ned Alday River Road. It's not the largest mass murder in the state, but it does remain the most gruesome. Jennifer Amy St. Clair was born on July 29, 1985, to parents Becky St. Clair and Robert Burns. In 2018, 33-year-old Jennifer was living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and was working as a waitress at a restaurant. She was described as an avid dog lover with a kind soul and an infectious smile who would always put others before herself. In late 2018, she met a man from New York on Tinder named Miles McChesney. Since 34-year-old McChesney was in town visiting his cousin, Bill Young, the two made plans to go hang out. On December 6, McChesney picked Jennifer up at her home on a 2001 Harley-Davidson Road King he had borrowed from a friend. Two other couples, including his cousin Bill, went along with them. The six of them visited at least three bars in Delray Beach before finally heading home around 2 a.m. Unfortunately, McChesney was intoxicated and driving recklessly in the southbound lanes of Interstate 95, just north of Atlantic Boulevard in Pompano Beach. At some point, Jennifer fell off the back of the motorcycle and landed on the interstate, where she was run over multiple times. McChesney stopped for a moment, but I guess realizing the severity of the situation, decided to flee and never called 911. However, he did call his cousin Bill, who was ahead of them. Sadly, Jennifer would not survive her injuries. Following her death, McChesney obtained a lawyer and immediately requested legal immunity in exchange for full cooperation. However, his request was denied because the investigation had just begun. Plus, since he fled that night, they weren't able to perform blood alcohol tests on him and he was never interviewed by investigators. Jennifer's family, angry about McChesney's irresponsibility that night, decided to sue him and the owner of the motorcycle, John Lewis, for $15,000 in damages to help with funeral and medical expenses. Under Florida law, the owner of a vehicle is responsible for whatever happens while someone else is driving that vehicle. At that point, McChesney needed to be questioned, but he was nowhere to be found. At one point, they were able to track him down and issue a subpoena to appear in a pre-trial deposition via Zoom, but he never showed up. Turns out, McChesney was a convicted felon with multiple arrests. In 2007, he was arrested for felony burglary and spent a year in jail. Then in November 2011, he was charged with possessing and selling a weapon, which he was not allowed to do as a felon. In 2015, he was charged with escaping custody after he fled the Horizon House Residential Reentry Center in Albany, New York, where he was being held for the firearm charge. In August 2017, he was sentenced to 18 months in prison for violating his terms of parole. The Florida Highway Patrol has since closed the investigation and has left it up to the state attorney's office to decide if they want to bring criminal charges against McChesney. However, as of 2023, this case remains unresolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. 
As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.